Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From the Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. It's possible to be totally oblivious to history, even when you're walking around on top of it. Still... You don't really expect someone who goes on a tour of a Louisiana plantation to be surprised when they hear a lot about slavery. And yet, this was precisely the experience of one very unhappy Yelp reviewer. My husband and I were extremely disappointed, she wrote, in a two-star review that surfaced on Twitter earlier this month. The reviewer went on, I am by far not racist or against all Americans having equal rights, but this was my vacation. She and her husband would not be taking another plantation tour anytime soon, she said. It was just not what we expected. It turns out this is actually a micro-genre of Yelp reviews. Tourists who are annoyed because their Gone with the Wind fantasy was rudely disrupted by history. It's like the trapdoor of the past opened underneath them, and suddenly they found themselves someplace they didn't want to be. To them, this is uncomfortable and inconvenient. But what if a trapdoor opens, and instead of being annoyed, you're curious? You brush yourself off and realize that you're seeing the place you were headed in a new way. It's not a nuisance. It's a discovery. That's what happened to Eve L. Ewing a while back. Eve, I should say, is someone who is very prepared to get excited about history. She is someone whose dream wedding involved leading a bus tour of her hometown. Truly, my fantasy was just to to be the person at the front of the bus with a microphone who's, like, gesturing out the window. I have <laughs> a really like, great picture. As opposed to fantasizing about, like, my wedding day when I'll have, like, a white dress no, and yeah, be a princess. Like, I'll be leading a tour yes. of Chicago. Yeah, I'll be leading an informative bus tour. <laughs> Eve is a writer and a sociology professor. Her husband is an economics professor. So they were pretty well equipped to realize this particular wedding fantasy. The day after the ceremony, they rented a tour bus and took their guests for a ride. We ran what we called the Chicago uh, Insider Bus Tour. 
we were trying to show people all the things that you wouldn't see on like the downtown mainstream tourism uh-huh. tour. And so we took them to like the Union Stockyards and we showed them where like the race riot happened uh-huh. in 1919. And uh, we talked about redlining and like public housing and basically just like the history of Chicago and the South Side. What was the guest reaction like? Oh, they loved it. I, I wanted to be like review us on Yelp, like because I feel like we did a really good job. But there was there Please was no give me an A on yeah, my wedding. No, I did. I really wanted. We said that we were like we're so good at this, and there's no like no one can review us or grade us. It was like a millennial when academics get married. Yeah, it was just yeah. like a sad millennial feel of like there's no way for me to formally receive praise for my success. <laughs> you know, and like a good high achieving millennial, Eve's got a lot of different projects in the works. She writes poetry, plays, children's books, magazine articles. Just in the last year, she's published a book on her sociology research, a book of poems, and a comic book for Marvel. You might know her as Wikipedia Brown on Twitter, where she's got a couple hundred thousand followers. A lot of times, when people write about Eve and her work, there comes a moment when the interviewer is like, whoa, how do you do so many different things? But for Eve, they all fit together. They're all part of one big project. It's something she's been working on in one way or another for most of her life. And it all comes back to Chicago. Chicago is where she was born. It's where she works now. And it's the subject she keeps returning to. For Eve, understanding her city is a way to understand the world. Chicago is the key. It lets her think about the biggest and most intractable problems, things like race and inequality. Taking a deep dive in your own backyard. It's a useful skill for when things feel impossibly fucked up. And even when she's not literally leading a bus tour, Eve's good at bringing other people along for the ride. She got started right out of college when she was teaching science at Pershing West, a public middle school in Chicago. Every teacher has their lane, right? So like kindergarten teachers, they're like, I love kindergarten because it's fun and we play. And like, I don't like those high school kids because they're like making out and doing drugs, (laughs) right? And then high school teachers are like, I like high school because I like to have robust conversations. Mm -hmm. And I don't like kindergarten because they like pee on themselves (laughs) and they can't read. And like they're losers. (laughs) You know, and so every teacher kind of has their like zone. And like middle school is my jam. That is I. A wild opinion because middle schoolers, I'm used to thinking of as, as possibly the worst people That's on the what planet. Everybody yeah. says. That's what, and so here's my defense of middle school. Like, I love teaching middle school because they are mature enough that you can have a lot of really interesting conversations, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, we would have classroom discussions about like, you know, global politics and like war and love and the planet and the nature of friendship. Like, you can have those deep conversations, but they are also experiencing a lot of things for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so, you get to be part of somebody's life when they are thinking about some of those things for the first time ever. And then the other thing about middle schoolers is they are 100% emotionally honest. Middle school kids, they walk in and they're angry and they're like, I'm so angry, right? And they walk in and they're sad and they're sobbing, right? Or they walk in and they're happy and they're like, this is the best day of my life, right? And that's kind of also me, right? I'm just like, yes, let's have all of our feelings. Pershing West was in Bronzeville, a historically black community on the south side. Bronzeville is sometimes described as the Harlem of Chicago, although Eve prefers to think of Harlem as the Bronzeville of New York. My school was um, virtually 100% black. I could name the, like, specific families of, you know, we had, like, two Filipino families, two Mexican families. That that was it. Everybody else was black. Um, one year we did get a white kid and all the <laughs> a token white kid. we did we got a little white girl and all the other kids were so like she needs like things explained you know she just needs to be cared for <laughs> what did they have to explain to her I 
don't know. Just like English was not her first language. Okay. And so, you know, they just wanted to take care of her and make sure she would be okay. And like also comb her blonde hair and like look at it and touch it. None of this stuff was new to Eve. Long before she was a teacher in Chicago public schools, she was a student in Chicago public schools, sitting on the bus and trying to make sense of what she was seeing. I went to a magnet school uh, for grammar school. And so I, I took the school bus every day. And my school itself was very diverse, but the bus was like, I grew up in a primarily Puerto Rican and Mexican neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so everybody on my bus was Mexican or Puerto Rican, except for like me and my brother and then like a handful of other black kids. So it's like this thing of knowing that like everybody on our bus is brown. All the kids who walk to school are white. All the kids who get off this bus look this way. All the kids who get off that bus look that way. Even as a kid, Eve understood that Chicago was segregated. She could see it as she crossed the city. But she was looking out at a landscape that had been shaped by forces she didn't yet understand. At some point, you start to become aware that those boundaries didn't come from nowhere. And so probably beginning when I was around 18 and 19 is when I started reading about history, <laughs> right? History that I wasn't taught in high school about why the city looked that way. And people think that segregation just happens. Like, the segregation fairy flies around at night with her <laughs> wand, and she just, like, <laughs> like bestows segregation across the yeah. land. And, like, the Black people will go here, and the Asian people will, Like, there like is a no— a curse or something, yeah. as opposed to deliberate policies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, there is no segregation fairy. Segregation is made by people through policy actions and through individual decisions. Those policies and decisions had carved Chicago into the landscape she saw out the school bus window as a kid. And they were the forces she wanted to understand years later when she decided to go get her Ph.D. In 2013, she'd left her teaching job and moved across the country for grad school when she saw some news that immediately caught her attention. Chicago was set to close dozens of public schools. And one of them was the school where she'd taught, Pershing West. The official rationale, according to the mayor and the school district, was that Pershing and all these other schools were failing. They pointed to test scores and enrollment figures. But Eve didn't think numbers like that told the whole story. She wanted to find a better way of explaining what a school meant to a community and what happened to that community when a school closed down. So that became the focus of her research. And one day, while she was digging around for some old housing statistics, she came across an 800-page document. A document from 1922 called The Negro in Chicago. It's this report about the condition of Black people in my city 100 years ago. And I was fascinated by how many things were shockingly different and then by how many things were so much the same. Those 800 pages contained the city she thought she knew, but from a new angle. It wasn't quite like anything she'd seen before. It was a report written in 1922 by a team of six white men and six black men. They'd been commissioned by the city to tell the full story to date of black people in Chicago. Three years earlier, in the summer of 1919, race riots had broken out across America. People called it the Red Summer. One of the worst and most violent of those riots took place in Chicago. The goal of this report was to piece together how it had happened. I realized how little I knew about this era. And, you know, I care a lot about Chicago and Chicago history. I talk about and think about race professionally. And yet I knew very little about this period that the more I explored it, the more I became convinced that it was actually really crucial for understanding the century that followed. For years, Eve had been trying to answer the question of what made Chicago the way it was. Almost 100 years earlier, these 12 men had spent 800 pages trying to do the same thing. They detailed hour by hour how the riots unfolded. Then there were the photos. In one, taken during the riot, 
you can see a black man lying on the ground at the foot of a flight of stairs. Standing over him are two white men, arms raised as they throw bricks or rocks at him. They're stoning him to death. The photos were taken on streets Eve had known her whole life. It's bonkers to look at, like, a place where you live, yeah. right, and see these incredible photos yeah. of, you know, huge mobs of people and, like, the military walking down the street because Chicago was under martial law and be like, man, how come I've never seen this before, <laughs> right? It's really, really incredible. But the reason the report is so long is that it isn't just about the riot. It's about everything that came before the riot. At the turn of the 20th century, more than 90 percent of America's black population lived in the South. And living in the South meant living under Jim Crow. It meant living with the KKK and without many opportunities besides sharecropping. It was a pretty terrible time um, to be a black person in America, specifically in the South. And the Chicago Defender, which is the most famous black newspaper ever, um, kind of like the the Black New York Times uh-huh. of the era, they started playing a really active role in encouraging Black people to leave the South and saying, you know, what is there for you here, right? Like, there's there's nothing for you. There's no future for you. White people are never going to accept you. You, you fear your women being sexually assaulted. You fear your fathers and husbands and brothers being murdered. Just come North and make a way for yourself somewhere else. And so Black people moved up to Chicago in droves um, as part of the Great Migration. This was a moment of huge change for the country in all kinds of ways. You see the spread of the blues and the birth of the Harlem Renaissance. It reshaped cities across the Northeast and Midwest, and none more than Chicago. But that kind of transformation doesn't happen easily. Whenever you have a city that has lots of newcomers coming in, they tend to not be welcomed, right? Mm -hmm. And so folks were trying to get jobs, um, and they were experiencing the same kind of xenophobic tensions that we see repeated all over America and all over the world in other cultural contexts. Mm. And so there there was a lot of racial tension during this time um, that ultimately kind of boiled over. It happened on the hottest weekend of the year when a boy named Eugene Williams went swimming and drifted past an invisible line into deadly waters. That's coming up after the break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This week, we're talking to Eve L. Ewing. She's a writer and sociologist, and a few years back, she made a discovery. It was a document hundreds of pages long that set out to tell the full story of Black life in Eve's hometown, Chicago. And it centered on the events of the summer of 1919. By that summer, World War I had ended. White veterans were returning home to find that Black migrants had picked up the jobs they'd left behind. And Black veterans were returning to find hostility from a country they'd just gone to war for. The last weekend in July was Chicago's hottest of the year. Temperatures were in the 90s. And on Sunday, July 27th, a lot of people went swimming. There were two beaches in Chicago that were not formally legally segregated, but that were kind of informally segregated in practice that were adjacent to each other. So a part of the lake where uh, only black people swam and a part of the lake where only white people swim. There was a boy named Eugene Williams who was 17 years old, and he was swimming on the the black part of the beach. And he was out in the water and kind of drifted over towards the white side. The general understanding is that he saw on the the shore that the white people were throwing rocks. Um, And so he became afraid that if he tried to go on shore that people would throw rocks at him and attack him. And so he um, hung on to this kind of piece of, of driftwood or a railroad tie and ultimately drowned. Eve had stumbled across that 800-page report when she was trying to track down one stray fact for her Ph.D. thesis. But she couldn't stop thinking about the summer of 1919 and the story of Eugene Williams. So she decided to write about it, not as an academic, but as a poet. This poem is called Jump Rope. Little Eugene, Jean, Jean, sweetest I've seen. Seen, seen, his mama told him, him, them white boys mean, mean, mean. He didn't listen, listen, listen to what mama say, say, say. Went to the lake, 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 that July day, day, day. No, it goes like. Little Eugene W, so sorry to trouble you. Rise, Eugene, rise. Calm your mama's cries. Just sit up and look around. Don't let them bury you down. No, it goes like. Down, down, baby, down, down, the water's tugging. Sweet, sweet baby, don't make me let you go. Swallow, swallow, grab the sky. Swallow, swallow, dark. Swallow, swallow, grab the sky. Swallow, swallow, dark. Grandma, grandma, sick in bed. Call on Jesus, cause your babies. No, it goes like. All dressed in black, black, black. All dressed in black, black, black. All dressed in. And he never came back, back, back. Eventually, a lifeguard pulled Eugene's body from the water. 
the police were called and the the black people who were present were like, you should arrest the people that were throwing rocks. The police refused to do that. Um, and then there was kind of an agitation. More police came and a black man named James Crawford is believed to have fired into the crowd or like fired into the air or something. And the police shot him and killed him. And so that's kind of how it all began. After Eugene Williams drowned, outrage spread fast. Black people were furious that police had refused to arrest the white people throwing rocks. In white enclaves, meanwhile, rumors circulated that black people had started to attack white people. Chicago had been on the brink of open conflict for a while, and after that day at the beach, the city lit up. Some of the chief instigators were the city's athletic clubs, which were basically white street gangs. The clubs had names like Our Flag, The Standard, and The Sparklers, and they were affiliated with local politicians. Richard Daly, who'd gone to become Chicago's mayor and the man at the top of its political machine, was actually a member of one of the athletic clubs. And so those groups became instrumental in kind of fomenting violence across the city and attacking random Black people. Um, Black people started getting attacked on the streetcar, getting attacked on the street, and then also fighting back. There were reports that uh, groups of white people in cars were driving down Black neighborhoods down the street and, like, sort of basically having drive-by shootings. And so Black people started barricading, building barricades in front of their houses and barricading themselves in and trying to, like, snipe them back. So the city basically descended into chaos. In the days that followed Eugene Williams' death, 23 Black people were killed, 15 white people were killed, and more than 500 people were injured. A thousand people lost their homes, and whole neighborhoods were burned to the ground. Eventually, the National Guard was called in to impose order. They used Wentworth Avenue as the dividing line. Black people were supposed to stay on one side and white people on the other. Decades later, it was a boundary that still hadn't disappeared. The violence of Chicago's summer of 1919 lasted for more than a week. Then the heat broke, then it rained. You were saying before, like, you've lived in Chicago all your life, and this was still something that felt like it was relatively unknown to you. Why is that? It's funny, like every event I do, people always, they raise their hand and be like, I'm so embarrassed to say that I don't know anything about this. And I'm always like, me neither. I didn't know anything. Right. Um, You know, I've been thinking about that. And I think my thought is that most of the narratives of racial history that people know most about in our country are histories where they can point to a hero and a supposed resolution, even if those resolutions like were temporary or were, were inadequate, right? So when you talk about Black history in the U.S., the two things people really know about is the Civil War slash slavery and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh-huh. In between, what were Black people yeah. doing? We don't know. Every hundred years, we can remember one thing. Yeah. Those are like right. the two it's things. Like, what happened between the 1860s and the 1960s? Yeah, not, <laughs> probably nothing, you know. And I think it's because people look at the Civil War, and obviously we have a variety of competing, some very inaccurate narratives about the Civil War in our country. But people can be like, yeah, Abraham Lincoln, Emancipation Proclamation, it was Gucci, the North won, call it a day, right? Yeah. And there's still this kind of like racial mythos around Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator and so on and so forth. And then the civil rights movement, you know, again, actually a very complicated history, but people are able to point to heroes. They're Mm -hmm. able to point to canonized heroes like Martin Luther King, like Rosa Parks, and to this kind of sanitized version of that history where, like, there were bad racist people. And then the good white people and the courageous black people came and then they won there's nothing like that for this story. Like, there was a bunch of people fought and killed each other in the streets. 
It was really gruesome. It was not for any real mighty cause or noble reason or good reason. Nobody got any new human rights out of it afterwards. It's a story of senseless violence. And it's a story that also sounds um, really uncomfortably familiar. That past hadn't gone away. In the fall of last year, Eve was back living in Chicago again, and the city was waiting for a verdict in the trial of Jason Van Dyke. He was a white Chicago police officer who'd killed a black teenager named Laquan McDonald. And when video footage of McDonald's death came out, it showed that he was walking away from police when Van Dyke shot him 16 times. A lot of people doubted that Van Dyke was really going to face justice for what he'd done. There was this fear that he was going to be found not guilty, and people were really afraid that Black people were going to riot. And nobody said that explicitly, but there were all these things like on the day of the verdict, the Chicago police literally took decommissioned public buses filled with police officers, like busfuls and busfuls of cops, and like deployed them around the city. People got emails at work telling them to go home early. Businesses were closing. And so there was this... But there was no acknowledgement that... There was no... It was just like, quote unquote, unrest, right? And so, um, yeah, so I got this email. Uh, I was living in an apartment building, and I got this email from my building manager about like how to not get caught up in a riot and how to not get caught up in a mob and call the police if you see anything. Don't let people follow you. Stay calm. You know, you might be confined at home. Make sure you have enough water and, you know, emergency. Pl- I was just like, like I said, there's a natural disaster yeah, coming. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, this is so inappropriate and so bizarre. A black teenager had been killed. Buses filled with cops were driving around the city, armed and waiting. People were warning each other about danger in the streets. And Eve, meanwhile, was thinking about all the ways that the summer of 1919 lived on in Chicago. The riots might not be a stop on most tours, but they hadn't disappeared into history. The conflicts that had flared then were the same ones that were still playing out in the city where she lived. Now, Eve's written a poetry collection that explores the story of that summer. It's called 1919, and it weaves together the past and present looking back over a century of life in Chicago. This book has a poem about Eugene Williams, who dies in 1919, and it has a poem about Emmett Till, and it has a poem that is indirectly about Laquan McDonald, right? And these are all Chicago boys, Black Chicago boys, senselessly killed. It's really depressing to think about this continuity of narrative that doesn't seem to get any better, that doesn't seem to go away. And uh, so, yeah, I don't think people like that story very much. Eve's love of Chicago is the kind of love that makes her want to look at its past with clear eyes, redlining and riots and all. She wants to open the trap door, even when what's underneath is heartbreaking or enraging. If you do too, you can pick up 1919. It's out now. This is my very sad book. Well, <laughs> summer reading! Yeah, yeah people, have been putting this book, people have been putting this book on all their, like, summer reads to watch. I'm like, I don't know! <laughs> I don't know about that! Fortunately for you and for Eve, it's almost fall. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Reckler. We're edited by Lynn Levy and Stella Bugby. Mixing and music are by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. Special thanks this week to Jim Plank. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.